Namaste. Welcome to Call and Response Podcasts with Krishnadas, where he shares meaningful stories of his life on the path, of his Guru Maharaji, and integrating spiritual practice into our everyday lives. Call and Response Podcasts is an offering of the Kirtanmala Foundation. The foundation is dedicated to spreading the teachings of Neem Karoli Baba, a great spiritual teacher of India. If you are interested in supporting this podcast and the work of the foundation, please visit kirtanwalafoundation.org K-I-R-T-A-N-W-A-L-L-A-H foundation.org So practice, you got to do practice, I'm sorry, you just have to. With our eyes open and our hearts open. But through a practice, you're, you're, you get used to coming back from being it's more like an ability to let go. Hi, everybody. It's nice to see some of the same faces week after week or whatever it is. Somebody wrote to me and said, such a nice community has grown up. I said, really? You know, how amazing. I never thought of that. <laughs> but it's true. It's true. One time Sharon and I were uh, doing a, a workshop weekend, maybe, or maybe just one day together in uh, L.A. And it was such a nice afternoon. It was really great, you know. So at the end, I said, oh, this is so great. Wouldn't it be great if we could all find some place and be together and we could just be together our whole lives? And then I said, oh. We did that. Earth, David Nickturn, my friend, our friend David, he said he was riding on the subway one day and he, he looked around and he thought to himself, what if I had to spend the rest of my life in this subway car, this train car, with these people? In New York, you don't look at anybody. Because you look at anybody, they immediately look at you. Yeah, what do you want? <laughs> so, but imagine. You know, if you were in a car with 30 people from all over, all different shapes and sizes, and these were the people you were going to spend the rest of your life with, you would need to, and you would want to connect eventually. You would have to connect. So this is where we are on this, as Jimi Hendrix called it, this third stone from the sun. This planet, we're all together here, passing through, passing through. Hi. Hi. Namaste. <laughs> oh, same to you. I just wanted to ask a question in regards to back to when KK told you to give up smoking ganja. I've been listening to over and over again when you were still smoking weed and then KK Sar said you must give it up? Actually, it was Maharaji. Actually, it was hash in India. And I, I, I wasn't smoking much at all every once in a long time. But we were standing outside his door, outside Maharaji's window, and somebody asked him about, I guess, about smoking hash. And he said, it's not good for you. It destroys your body over time. If it was good for you, if it would bring us to God, 
I'd get a room built and we'd fill it with hash and we'd all go in together and smoke it. The reason I ask is because I'm trying really hard to give it up as a coping mechanism and it's really hard to surrender into that. Mm -hmm. uh, why do you want to give it up? Because I have this ridiculous thing in my mind that to be a good devotee, you have to do all these things. You, you have it in your mind that you're supposed to give up all these things? Is that what you said? Forget about it. Just smoke your ass off until you get sick of it. <laughs> and then you'll just give it up. You won't like it. Go somewhere where nobody's going to bother you for the weekend. Get like about a half a pound of this shit and smoke your brains out. <laughs> That's why we do it. We're looking for bliss. You see? Yeah. We're looking to be freed of our suffering and our fear and we can't deal with our shit so we try to numb ourselves all that does is it numbs us and what it, the other thing it does it actually over time it destroys our will it destroys our ability to actually take care of ourselves and gets us really confused about what we want and what's good for us it's a very confusing situation. You know, there was a great Lama named Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche who said, what most people call bliss is just a little less pain. So that's our situation, you know. We think that a little less pain, a little numbing is gonna do the trick for us, but it always comes back. Reality or our subjective reality just rears its ugly head and we look in the mirror and all we see is our shit. So welcome to the human race. That's where we are. So really you're running a trip on yourself for a trip you're running on yourself. Give yourself a break, at least run only one trip on yourself. That'll be a lot less painful. But I wouldn't worry about forcing yourself to give anything up, but why don't you, play around a little bit and when you smoke be present look at what is this doing to me am i really feeling good yeah okay cool i'll keep doing it but don't just like smoke and then go out and roll around in the mud you know <laughs> pay attention to what's really going on is it really something that you're enjoying or is it just a very ineffective way of avoiding dealing with issues. Sweetheart, if we don't deal with our issues, they deal with us. Yeah. But still, don't push yourself. Don't push yourself. You know, just pay attention. That's all. Is this really what I want? Ask yourself, is feeling like this really what I want? Or am I really getting what I want from doing this? That's the question you could ask if you want. But don't give yourself such a hard time. It's not worth it. Because if you didn't give yourself a hard time, there would be no hard time, right? So why do we give ourselves a hard time? Well, there's a lot of reasons. So at least let's pay attention to what we're doing every day and see if it's really getting us what we want. And if it's not, let's try something else, that's all. It'll fall away. It'll fall away because 
it's not what you really want. You get attached to doing the same thing and you forget that it's not really working. You're not noticing that it's not really working. I started smoking to turn off the mind and then it just became a habit. Yeah. When I used to smoke, I would get so fucking paranoid I couldn't breathe. I would get so paranoid I couldn't even function. When I was younger, I'd just get stupid. And when you're young, stupid is normal. So that was okay. But later on, I just realized it was just making me so paranoid. I had to stop. I couldn't bear it. And I just stopped. You know, it just was not working. <clears throat> so, yeah, you're cool. Don't worry about it. It's all right. Yeah. Just get good weed, for God's sake. Don't smoke shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you'll get over it. You'll get over it. And if it's not even something to get over. This is your life, you know. Is this the way you want to spend it? And if the answer is yes, then do it. No problem. If it's not, you will change because you don't want this. And if you want this, there must be a lesson in it for you, you know. Sometimes we do things just so we can run trips on ourselves. And, and be negative on ourselves, you know, because yep. we're used to that. It's like sometimes people who grow up in an abusive home can't really accept affection unless there's some dark side to it, some abuse to it as well. We keep acting out those original programs that were put in there when we're young. But the more we pay attention to it and the more we try to just give ourselves a break, it kind of develops, you know, take it easy. We've all been beat up enough by life. We don't have to add on to it so much, you know? Thank you. Yeah. If you find some good weed, let me know where to find it, okay? <laughs> I haven't smoked in so long. People always ask me, are you clean and sober? And I said, I may be sober. I'm not sure if I'm clean. It's hard. But it's real hard. It is. But it's hard because we have a need to get away from the stuff that hurts us. So we find something that seems to work, but does it really work? That's the thing. And if it doesn't, and you know that, sooner or later, it'll just fall away, really. But it's difficult to give up our habitual actions, you know? And really, in a sense, the smoking is just another habitual action that we picked up on because the other ones that we were doing weren't working. So when this one is finished, there'll be something else. So, so just pay attention, be with it. You know, are you really getting what you want? And if you are, then there's nothing to say, fine, keep going, no problem. But it's up to you to really take a look at it. And don't be so hard on yourself, come on. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. I'm hard enough on myself for all of us. <laughs> Hi, sweetie. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm, I'm healthy and writing a book and doing well. Uh-huh, you think uh, writing a book is a healthy thing to do? <laughs> I do. I see, okay. So I have a question. I have a, a friend whose teenage son, I think he's 17, 16 or 17 now. He reached out to me because He's had some encounters with Maharaji, some fairly without the help of 
substances. He's had some fairly psychedelic experiences in which he feels he's been visited by Maharaji. He did not know who he was. He didn't recognize him, but then he did some research and he said, that's the guy. So much. Yeah. Can you just tell him to give Maharaji my address next time he yeah. comes? <laughs> so he was asking, his mom suggested that maybe he reach out to me and, and ask for guidance. And so I just, I did my best, but I wondered what you might say to him. By the way, he's read Be Here Now and Polishing the Mirror, and he listens to you. He listens to your music. Is there anything else? Well, certainly there are more books he could read to immerse himself more in that with his mind. But is he having problems like stopping at the red and going at the green? I mean, is he having trouble getting through the day and dealing no. with other people? No, okay. no, That's no. Good. He's good. He's inspired, and he just wants to immerse. I think. I thought of Parvati's new book. That's a great book. Doctor Larry's book is great. Sometimes brilliant. It gives another, a, a, a whole other version, a whole other way of seeing Maharaji and what he does and what he's done in the world and what he's doing. Yeah, I would definitely uh, encourage him to, as long as he's dealing with daily life in a good way. If it's something that all of a sudden he's saying, you know, I can walk on water or cars can't hurt me, then you have to be careful. But if he's really more or less together, then, you know, he could certainly immerse himself more. There's more and let him listen to Ramdas too, some of the Ramdas stories and stuff like that. That'd be great. So he gets to understand this is, it's not just something else. It's also here. It's also about how becoming a good human being now and living in the world in a good way. That it's not going somewhere else where Maharaji is somewhere else. You want it to integrate. He's kind of young, but you want him to feel okay about himself now here in the world, not yeah. just think that I have to go somewhere else to get this or, you know, and tell him to talk to Maharaji. Well, yeah, tell him to, tell him to feel his presence where he is, not somewhere else, you know, try to guide him to be in his body, you know, to yeah. be here. Um, yeah, give him my, my address, tell him to give it to Maharaji next time he comes. Hey, this guy wants to see you. Here's his number. Speaking of seeing people, can I ask you a personal you can question? Ask. I don't have to answer, but you can ask. I'm wondering how you're doing in the aftermath of RD's Ramdas's transition and if you feel him. <clears throat> oh, I feel him very much. I miss him very much. It's like that country song that I'm writing, you know, how can I miss you when you won't go away? I miss my interactions with him. My favorite thing was making him laugh, you know. He he would explode in laughter sometimes. We had so much fun and I miss him a lot, but I feel him a lot. No, but is not the right word. I miss him a lot and I feel him a lot. And a lot of my dearest 
elders have passed on from the body in the last few years. And there's a well of sadness there, for sure. And that's okay. You know, I mope around anyway, just a little bit more moping. <laughs> I'm used to it. Thank you. You're welcome. Take it easy, huh? All right. How are you today? Okay. Hi. How are you? I was thinking a lot about something that I think you said quickly in our last time together about, I think I wrote it down correctly, that the lesson of betrayal is trust. And I've been thinking about that and looking at my life. And the one thing that has come up a couple times is I notice my sister-in-law, my very dear sister-in-law, who is a very good friend also to me, passed away between the time you and I were together and this time. And one of the things that I notice, and I don't know if it's betrayal, but I'm trying to kind of map it that way. Like I have angry, like I'm, I'm mad at her, I'm mad at the universe, I'm mad at whoever it is there is to be mad at that, you know, that she left, that she took, that she went away. And, and really for me, actually, it's a little bit like she took herself away. My little granddaughter, who was only 10 months old in this year of 2020, also passed away. And again, my experience was being really angry. Like, how could that little girl do that to my daughter, who was her mom? And I'm just wow. interested in kind of exploring that the lesson of betrayal is trust. That's sort of what I'm yeah. interested mm -hmm. in. I'm not sure if that particular phrase pertains to what you're talking about. I think what you're talking about is a loss of control. You know, when God died, she made you the boss. So you've been in control of everything. And now people are doing things without your permission. And that's very painful. And, and actually the pain that you feel, the anger is really just more protection, self-protection, because the grief is so strong. So it just transforms itself into anger. So it, your anger gets something outside of you, you think, but grief is so internal, you know, that it, it's a much deeper kind of emotion and more painful. So yeah, that's a lot of pain there. I think the anger is just protecting yourself from the from the depth of the and that's okay, you know, really. I mean, I think as the days go by, the anger will dissolve and the grief will rise up and you'll become more aware of it and then you'll be able to process some more of that. You know, everybody has their own life to live. They're not living it for us. They're living it according to what they have to work out for themselves. People don't come into this world a blank slate. All little children are not totally pure in the sense of they're all good. Everybody comes in with their own predispositions for things. The parents they were born to, the culture they were born in, the experiences they have, all constantly like a, a self-fulfilling prophecy and they do the work they have to do and there's no way to understand it in the mind because it's beyond the mind yeah 
you know, let me read you, let me read this letter. Maybe most of you don't know this. This is very heavy, okay? It's really heavy, but so is death and so is life. So I want to read this letter to you. The background, this is a letter that Ramdas wrote to the parents of a very young, a young woman, a teenager, I believe, who was killed by somebody. She was raped and killed. And so <clears throat> her name was Rachel. And Ramdas wrote this letter to the parents. Rachel finished her work on earth and left the stage in a manner that leaves those of us left behind with a cry of agony in our hearts. As the fragile thread of our faith is dealt with so violently, is anyone strong enough to stay conscious through such teachings as you are receiving? Very few. And even they would have only the briefest whisper of equanimity and peace amidst the screaming trumpets of their rage, grief, horror, and desolation. I can't assuage your pain with any words, nor should I, for your pain is part of Rachel's legacy to you. Not that she or I would inflict such pain by choice, but there it is. And it must burn its purifying way to completion. For something in you dies when you bear the unbearable. And it's only in that dark night of the soul that you are prepared to see as God sees and to love as God loves. Now is the time to let your grief find expression. No false strength. Now is the time to sit quietly and speak to Rachel and thank her for being with you all these few years and encourage her to go on with her work, knowing that you will grow in compassion and wisdom from this experience. In my heart, I know that you and she will meet again and again and recognize the many ways in which you have known each other. And when you meet, you will in a flash know what now is not given to you to know, why this had to be the way it was. Our rational minds can never understand what has happened, but our hearts, if we can keep them open to God, will find their own intuitive way. Rachel came through you to do her work on earth, which included the manner of her death. Her soul is free now, and the love that you can share with her is invulnerable to the winds of changing time. In love, Ramdas.
Thank you for that. And thank you for reminding me that grief is there and it's like in his letter, the burning of it, you know, burns up something, consumes something. Let's thank Ram Dass. We get so caught up with the details of our daily life. The little hurts that we get, the little joys we crave, and the little discomfort that we might feel. It's also important to us until we step back a little bit and see the whole picture as best we can. I remember when I was young and I knew everything. You couldn't tell me anything. So. Good to be reminded again and again what this is really all about. There's great joy in our hearts that can't be destroyed by anything in this world. And our work is to find that joy, find that love, find that happiness, despite what the world is telling us about ourselves. Ramnam Karnese Sapura Hojata. Maharaji said over and over, from repeating the names of God, everything is accomplished. Because when we're doing that, when we're listening to the sound of the name, when we're repeating these names, at that moment, we're not obsessing about ourselves. We're not caught in our version of me. We're tuning to a deeper place inside of us where everything is okay, just as it is. That's why practice is so important. Because it's not how you feel when you're doing the practice. How does a farmer feel when he's riding on a tractor planting seeds? He's not eating the fruit of his work at that moment. The seeds have to grow. But if you don't plant them, they don't grow. So it's our responsibility to ourselves and to everyone everywhere, everyone in our lives and everyone on the planet to do this work of turning within, opening a window into that place within us that's deeper than all this shit, deeper than the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves that we just believe day after fucking day. So it's up to each one of us to do that work for ourselves and for the ones we love and for the people we don't even know. Because we're all in this together. One of Ramdas's greatest, I think it was his greatest quality, was his willingness to drop his own trip at any moment for you. No matter what he was feeling, no matter what he wanted for himself, he was 
ready, willing, and able at any moment to be there with you, with us. Regardless of what else he had going on. He would drop it in a second to be present with somebody. It was amazing. And that quality, as his life went on and he suffered terribly from the wheelchair and the stroke and the neuropathy and the pain, and that quality turned into real humility, real presence. And he didn't inflict his suffering on anyone else. Quite extraordinary. Every once in a while with people he really knew well, yeah, he would be an asshole. But that was allowed. One time when I first met him, not the very first time, but the first couple of times I, I, I met him, and he said something so horrible to me. This is way back, you know. I wrote him a letter, and I, or I said to him at the time, you know, you're just a, you're a fucking asshole. So two weeks later, I got a letter from him. He said, Shiva is a cosmic asshole, which was his way of apologizing. <laughs> it's so interesting. We, you know, we see other people as we see ourselves, as egos, really. We see other people's stuff. And we see our lives as stuff just chugging along, you know. But when I look at Ramdas, I see this incredible being of light that was always there, manifesting more and more. And by the end, that's pretty much all there was. Even though sometimes he didn't think that. Because there's still, there's always stuff. When you're here in this body, there's always some stuff. Over the 50 years we were together, there was so much, so many different types of teachings going on. Even though the, the situation about this letter is not exactly the same, it's the context that, that's important. Not important, but it's the context that's so powerful for us. We chop life up into little sound bites or little TikTok clips, and we forget what else is going on. We don't know, we're not aware of the context of things, for the reality of things. We just pick little snippets and then we get off on that or we have reactions to that. But our hearts have to get as wide as the world to encompass everything that's going on. These great beings, Maharaji knew everything. He was aware of the suffering of every being in the universe and everything he did was to relieve that suffering in whatever way he could, every minute of every day. These great beings, they're aware of the suffering, but it doesn't destroy them because there's nothing to destroy. There's no ego. There's no one holding on to a version of yourself. There's just the whole universe. These beings have become the sky that holds all the clouds and the smog and the plains and the birds and the cities and even the earth, everything's held in that sky. 
and the sky is not affected by it. It holds it lovingly and with gentle kindness and compassion, never destroyed by whatever happens inside of that sky. And that's where we're going. That's what we're on the way to becoming, that sky, to recognizing that we already are that sky-like presence being. But we forget again and again and again and again. But you don't know you forget until you add a practice to your life. That's what shows you that you've forgotten when you're gone. You're there singing Ram. There's a thousand people singing with you. And you're thinking about screwing the girl next to you or the guy, whatever you're into. And then you go, oh, shit, I'm supposed to be singing. But you were singing, but you just weren't paying attention. So you noticed you were gone. Without the practice, you don't know you're gone. You just grow up, go to high school, drink some beer and die, and you're not there for one second. And that's not good. Well, there you go. It doesn't have to be that way. So when we add some kind of practice to our lives, that's what shows us, it reveals to us how that when we're not here. But we only see it when we come back. I'll drink to that. Hi, Krishna Das. How are you? Okay. The past couple of um, sessions that you've had, you've told a couple of stories about your Indian father. And Mr. Tuari. Yeah. yeah, I was uh, curious about how you met him and how he came to be your Indian father. Well, it was our my first trip to India, Ramdas's second trip. We were at in Kenchi. I think it's probably the spring of seventy one, which was the first spring that we were there. Most of us arrived in the fall. Many of us arrived in the fall of seventy, and then the spring of seventy one, we were in, living in Nanital and going to the temple to see Maharaji probably every day. And we might have met Mr. Tuari there, but then we were invited to dinner at his house at some point. And KK was our kind of go-between. So uh, we went to dinner at KK, the Tuari's house, which was up on the top of the hill in Nanital at the school, because he was the headmaster at that point of this very prestigious school up there. And we had a very nice dinner, and Tawari was very charming, very happy that night. He loved Ramdas very much. He was very attracted to Ramdas. But the funny thing was that KK had said some things about Tawari to us. He had communicated that there was something about Tawari that wasn't right. You know, something was off. We felt that because KK had transmitted that to us about he, the way he had talked about him. And so that first visit was very nice. We had a great meal. Mrs. Tuari was one of the greatest cooks that ever lived on a little kerosene burner and a little fireplace, you know, a little fire. 
But the rest of the time in India, that first trip, while Maharaji was alive in the body, we weren't very close with him. But it was after Maharaji left the body, one of my guru bhais became very close with Tiwari, got to know him more, and some of them. I was already gone from India, so in the summer of 73, that's when they got to know him better. And after Maharaji left the body, they continued to be close with him. And through that connection, I met Tuari again. And I still had this attitude about him because of what KK had originally when he introduced us to him. But there's a funny story about that. And so the story is this, that KK and Tuari were also gurubhais of another very great saint named Brahmachari Maharaj, who was believed to be the reincarnation of Sombari Baba. If any of you have read KK's book, Dev Bhumi, it's an incredible book, incredible stories of the saints and especially Sombari Baba. So is this getting too complicated? Anyway, so I got close to Tuari anyway because he was so kind to me and Mrs. Tuari was so loving and sweet to me and they took me in and allowed me to live with them and stay with them as long as I wanted. And really they just adopted me, you know, and I really became like the the oldest son in the family to this day. I'm called Kedi Tao, which means brother's brother. It means uncle. So some years later, it maybe was even like as late as, I don't know, the late 70s maybe. I was in the temple with the Tawaris in Kenchi. We were living, staying in the temple and KK came. Now there's a backstory, okay? This great saint, Brahmachari Maharaj, when he left the body, before he gave, left the body, he gave a bunch of money to KK's cousin, you could say. And with the instruction that he should use that money to build a small temple to Shiva at this little orchard where KK had an akuti, a little cabin. And Brahmacharya Maharaj used to stay at that place. Many did a lot of sadhana out there and he wanted a little lingam installed, a little small Shiva temple built. So he gave the money to KK's cousin. And over the years, Tuari was the eldest disciple of that guru. So KK was always asking him to organize the building of the temple that their guru had asked to get built. And Tuari was not doing it. And after a few years of trying to get Tuari to do it, KK just lost his patience and got pissed off at Tuari. And that's why when we met Tuari the first time, there was all this negativity, okay? So the thing is, why did Tuari not do it? So here's what happened. It turns out that KK's cousin had given that money away to his sons and the money was gone. He had just pissed the money away. KK didn't know that, but Tuari knew that. But he didn't want to tell KK because KK would be angry and hurt and furious. And so he didn't tell KK all those years why he wasn't going ahead and having the temple built. And he took the brunt of KK's anger. So finally, KK found out and he came to the temple 
And he came into the room where we were and he was crying. And he kept saying to Tuhari, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me you knew? All these years you knew and you, you didn't tell me why. And Tuhari just said, would you have believed me? <laughs> and of course, that's when Kinky really broke down and cried. And in order to make up for his anger towards KK, he said, I'm going to make halva for you, you know. So he made this huge pot of sushi halva, and he brought it to us, and we had to eat it. But he used so much ghee that we all had the shits for about a week. This is how these people are. They're, they're so great. All these years, Tuari was willing to take the abuse so KK wouldn't be hurt. So he wouldn't be angry at his cousin. And it was only after his cousin died that KK found out. And until then, Tuari wouldn't tell him. I mean, the humanity of these people is so extraordinary. I mean, we're just like babies next to these people. So yeah, so over the years I got very close with him and I could tell him anything and I did tell him everything. But he always gave me the bottom line. He always chilled me out. He always showed me a bigger space to hold it in, no matter what I was going through. It was amazing. And he was such a great yogi. He was. Extraordinary. I mean, uh, whenever I was there, Ma would sleep with the kids and I would sleep in the same bed with Baba, with Tuari. He would get up at 3 in the morning, 3.30 in the morning, go piss, come back, sit in bed, cross his legs, boom, gone. For four or five hours until the house woke up and tea was prepared and, you know, then he would wake up and, you know, have his morning hot milk and read the paper. Not once. In how many years? Not once in 22 or three years did he ever say to me, when he woke up, would you like to meditate? You know, maybe you should sit up, you fucking asshole. Not once. And I kick myself now. What I could have learned, what I could have experienced, I never said to him, how do I meditate? Help me. All those years. I mean, oh. Yeah. But still, he loved me so much. He kept chiseling away, trying to get a little chip in there so he could slip in a little awareness, you know? And I wasn't having any of it. Unbelievable. So what to do? Here we are. Thank you for that. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay, so we also have a question from someone who would like me to read the question to you. Thank you for this opportunity. I would like to thank Krishnadas for Maharaji came to me through Bernie's Chalisa. He has been like an an ambassador to Maharaji in the same way that Ramdut is to Rajaram. I just wish to know how to find Maharaji's love back. I live in fear that because of my impure life and thoughts, I may lose him forever 
And that life would be like without his love. Basically, I feel I cannot live up to his expectation of me. I want you to save that question. Write it down somewhere and set a timer on your calendar and read it again in a year. Okay? Maharaji has no expectations for anybody because he knows everything. Not just who we are now, but who we've been and who we're going to be, what we've done and what we're going to do. He knows why we do the kind of things we do. And he's already shining on us and ripening us so that we do less and less to hurt ourselves and more and more to save ourselves and others. The only expectations here are your own. And that's a program that's running, that's put into us by our upbringing. The way our parents saw themselves is what we absorb. Not how they see us. Yeah, that's in there too. Or how they treat us. That's in there too. But more how they see themselves, how they go through the day, how they move through their lives is very much how we take a shape moving through our life. So the self-judging that you're doing, this is what we do to ourselves. There's no love. Love isn't something you earn. It's something that we are already because he is love and he lives within us. And that love lives within us as who we are, but we don't see it. We don't know how to look for it. Most of us don't even know that it's there, but you know it's there because you've already felt it. And as he says, once I take a hold of your hand, I never let go, even when you let go of my hand. So it's okay. Keep beating yourself up and keep believing that you're a piece of shit and that you've done all these terrible, impure things like nobody. You're the only one in the world who's ever done anything like that, by the way. All the rest of us, you know, we only live for the neck up. We don't have sexual desires. We're not greedy. We're not full of anger and shame and grief and manipulation of other people for our own desires. No, you're the only one like that. So, you know. When you're tired of doing that to yourself, you'll begin to not, to stop doing that. Even believing those things about yourself, we all do that. That's why we turn towards the great saints, why we turn towards the Dharma. That longing in our hearts is already the longing to be free, the longing to live in that love. That's already grace. That's already Maharaji reaching in and pulling you out of your ship. So just relax, go with the flow and take it easy on yourself. You can't make it go faster and you can't slow it down. It's already happening. There's just no reason to keep giving yourself a hard time. But except for the reasons you think you have to do that. But why do we believe those things? Because we're trained to believe those things. We're born in a culture that only has those things. Materialistic Western culture. There's no soul. There's no reality. And even the people in Western culture who talk about God, most of them, you know, it's a pity. They don't even have a 
clue what they're talking about. They're just glorified, egocentric, power-tripping, manipulative, good and evil, judgmental minds. God is love. Love is God. He said. <laughs> but we have to find that. So, get in touch with that longing that you have, that you feel. That longing is where the love is. That longing is not where the stories about yourself are. My question, as a devotee of Hanuman and Ram, was there any meaning behind the choice of the first track on your first al album being to Shiva? Shiva, Hanuman is, is a form of Shiva. Hanuman is a form, is a manifestation of Shiva's energy in order to be a part of Ram's Leela and serve Ram. There are 11 Rudras, 11 faces of Shiva. The last face is a monkey face. And that is Hanuman. That's where that energy comes from. But that chant came from Mr. Tuari and Maharaji after Tuari died. They just dropped it on me. And there it was. And the chanting at the very beginning of that Om Namah Shivaya, of that track, is Tuari chanting the Shiva Puja up in the mountains in a place called Jageshwar, which is a famous ancient Shiva temple in the Kumaon Hills. And I recorded that, and that I put that in there first, and then the song starts after that few seconds of Tuari chanting. And that was the beginning of my, uh, the real beginning of my chanting. The first CD was just a good try. <laughs> There's some nice things on it. It's okay. But when I listen to it, I hear my mind. I hear me trying. That's just me, not you. But I hear me trying. It's from Pilgrim Heart on that I feel I was finally able to sing in a good way, sing the right way. But that's just my judgmental mind. So, yeah, that's all. And, you know, really the old devotees of Maharaji worshipped him as Shiva. Tuari worshipped him as Shiva. That's the next level from which is projected into this world. So Shiva takes the form of Hanuman. Vishnu takes the form of Ram. The goddess takes the form of Sita. The Shakti takes the form of Sita. And all the other beings take those forms in order to live out this drama to eradicate negativity from the world. That's what an avatar manifests. That's what allows an avatar to manifest this intense darkness. So I don't get into, you know, you know who you like better, Vishnu or Shiva. I once said to Tuari, I said, Baba, who's greater, Vishnu or, or Shiva? And he looked at me and said, my boy, how can you compare infinites? <laughs> How can you compare infinites? They're both infinite. How do you compare them? Infinity is infinity. They're just the same thing. So this is all stuff, you know, just sing.
So all, these are all the names of your own true nature, ultimately, because we're, there's only one in the whole universe. At least that's what they say. Maybe someday we'll know what that means, but that's what they say. Anything else? I spent a lot of time in Colorado over the last 10 years with um, Karen, the love of my life, who I love dearly. And she passed away in a Colorado hospital on the 15th of November, and I didn't get a chance to be with her. <sighs> and my heart is completely shattered. Yeah. All our hopes and dreams have been ripped away from us. And, uh, I loved it. She had a lot of health problems. Uh, rheumatoid arthritis and lupus and many things. She turned 70 this year. I'm 36, but in, inside we were the same age, you know. Yeah. I love to take care of her and to uh, to do things with her. And we watched old movies and we we used to watch the Andy Griffith Show and <laughs> yeah, I can, you know. You know um, Oh, we just love the same things, and, and now I just I just devastated. I guess you probably covered this already, but I just wondered if you had any stories or any uh, insights about grief and what to do with it. I don't know what to do yeah. with myself. Yeah, even under the, the best circumstances, this kind of grief is. You can't move it. You can't think yourself out of it. And these circumstances these days when we're locked up with our minds pretty much 24-7 makes dealing with anything very difficult, almost impossible. But, you know, my dear friend Bob Thurman always says, there are no dead beings, he says. He yelled me, there are no dead beings. Beings don't die. They drop a body when the work is finished. They take another one. But because you and I are attached to who we think we are, it seems like somebody's walked off the stage, you know, and left us here. And that's a real feeling. You know, you, you, it, we can't up-level that. We can't make it go away. But when we're in that feeling of, of that person and missing that person, we're missing the body, but the person is like right inside of us already at that moment. It's almost like the, the virtual reality thing that we're into these days, you know? So you and I are looking at this image of each other, but I can't touch you. I can't, and you could turn your screen off and I could still hear you talk. We're in this space together. So, but because we have our programs, man, our, you know, all our stuff, our hopes and dreams, as you say, when we're not getting what we thought, what we want, what we thought we were gonna, it hurts. But as the flame of those emotions slowly burn down, what's left is the presence of that person. And the love does not go away. The love does not go anywhere. And the love is really who those people are. 
They're not who we think we, they are. They're not who we imagine them to be. Our dancing partners aren't who we think they are. They are love, they are reality, they are being, and we're all connected always. And I know uh, so many of my dearest elders and friends have passed on in the last couple of years. It's extraordinary. I miss them and I, it hurts, but I can't deny that they're here also. I just don't want to let myself feel that. I want to hold on to my, you know, what are you going to do? You live through it. You live through it. You keep breathing. And the intensity of the grief will go, will definitely become more transparent. And as that happens, the sting of the loss will lessen and the, you will remember the love more. And the love is what you want. The love is what we always want. It's hard for us to let ourselves be okay with things that we don't want to be okay with. One time, Tuari and Maharaji were up on the roof of this temple, and all of a sudden, Maharaji starts to dance around like this, you know, in ecstasy. And he says, oh, died in this, you know. And he was seeing that this woman, one, this, this old lady that had taken care of him for many years and always brought him food and had just died in some village someplace else, and he knew. So Tuari says to him, you butcher, you butcher, she, treated, she served you for 40 years and this is what you do, you dance when she dies? Maharaji just looked at him and said, what? You want me to act like one of the puppets, like you? We're all puppets here, man, you know. Our stuff, all the strings that pull us around is our stuff. And what to do? It'll get better, I guarantee. There's no doubt. Just be with it as best you can and talk yourself down from the grief a little bit and remember that you're feeling them right now. They're here with you right now, not in a body. We can't see it with our eyes. We can't touch, but our hearts are touching that. We're feeling them now. But we don't, you know, we're, we're spoiled brats. You know, we want it the way we want it. And when we don't get it the way we want it, we get pissed off and angry. And that's not going to help us. But we can't help it. What are we going to do? So be with all of it. But don't deny that the love is still here. Because the love will always be here. Even when your body is gone, the love will still be here. So... But don't push it away. We can't do that. We have to live with it. It's a gift in a way. The grief is a gift. The grief forces us to look deeper and be with the love that is there and let go of the attachment to all that stuff around what we thought that person was. Like you said, the hopes and dreams, you know? You know? Be 
in the now, right here, where we are. All those loves are together in our hearts always. We're all together with these beings that have passed on. How many lives we've lived? How many people we've left behind? How many people we've met again and again? There's this story of this Buddhist elder, one of the great elders, Mahakasapa, after the Buddha had left the body. He was like the, the elder. and He came out of the jungle one day with some of his disciples to beg for food. And as they approached this village, they stopped and the elder looks out and he smiles. And one of his disciples sees this and says, oh, great one. You know, an arhat doesn't smile without a cause. What is the cause of this smile? These are the way Buddhists supposedly talk. So the elder says to him, look upon that scene. Look upon that and tell me what you see. So the disciple looks out and he says, well, you know, at the edge of the village, there's this little hut. And out in front of the hut, there's uh, a few people. There's this woman sitting on a chair, nursing a baby, holding a piece of meat that she's eating. And, and there's a dog trying to get the meat. And she's kind of kicking the dog away, keep the dog away from the meat. And the elder says, just so. In fact, that young woman is nursing her enemy, eating her mother, and kicking her ex-husband, her former husband, away to keep him away from the meat that she's eating. In other words, we think we're seeing reality. You know, you think you're you. I think I'm me. You think she's gone and you're still here. They say uh, that we've all taken so many births and been everything to everyone which is why we should treat everyone well, because they've been our parents, they've been our lovers, they've been our friends, our brothers, our sisters, our enemies. One time Maharaji was sitting around with some devotees and one of them was a very old devotee of his, the sweetest of all the old devotees that I ever met. And he just casually, Maharaji just casually pointed to him one day and said, well, in our last birth, he was my enemy. What? You know, it's like, you can't, it, it's beyond processing with the mind. So. The play goes on, the, the, the characters keep changing. When I was gonna kill myself, my ex-girlfriend, my former girlfriend killed herself in America when I went to India, after I was in India, and she, then she came to see me at night one night after she killed herself. So I was really devastated and I was flipped out when she came to see me and I went running to Maharaji. <clears throat> so anyway, it's a long story. But after that happened, he started to tease me about getting married. And he said, oh, Krishna Das cried when his wife died, but he'll be happy when he's married again. And I was freaking out because what would happen is there was a big group of people, I mean, 20, 30 people at the most. And, you know, people would kind of get together, you know, and start spending time together, the boys and the girls. 
And Maharaji would look at them and say, oh, you're friends. They're friends. Isn't that nice? They're friends now. And he'd pet them on the head. Oh, you're friends. That's good, you know. A couple of days later, he said, oh, you're good friends. Oh, they're good friends. Wow, yeah, that's great. You know, pet them on the head. A few days later, he taps him on the head and says, now you're married. Go back to America, see your parents. Go. So I was totally dedicated to not getting sent away. So I was like this. I would not look at a woman. I would not get involved with anybody like that. I wanted to stay with him. And I saw that this was just a ticket to Palookaville if you got back to America, you know. So I don't know where I was going with that. But, oh, yeah, so... <clears throat> So then he kept teasing me about getting married. And of course, I was flipping out that he was trying to send me away. And a few different things happened. And I wound up actually having a complete nervous breakdown. I mean, full on hallucinations out of my fucking mind. And one day I was sitting in the back in one of the rooms that we hung out during the day while he was in his rooms and in the floor in front of me this this black whirlpool slow motion charcoal gray black whirlpool opened up in the floor in front of me and was like slow motion you know going around and i was going down into it and just before i would have i don't know what one of my gurubais came to the door and said, Krishadas, what? Maharaji's calling. He wants you to come right away. Okay. So I got up and I went to the front of the temple. <clears throat> and as I walked towards him, I, I, I completely broke down. I started weeping. And I just basically fell into his lap and I just was weeping uncontrollably. And he was really quiet, which was unusual. He didn't move, he didn't say anything. He was completely still. And little by little, I calmed down. And he started talking very quietly, which was also very unusual. He was always laughing and joking and teasing and throwing through all around. This was different, this was like, he was talking, but it was my own inner voice talking. It was like he was talking inside. And he said, the soul is never born, never dies. You can't cut it. You can't wet it. You can't, you know, this is from the Bhagavad Gita, chapter two, I think it is. And then he looks at me and says, what are you going to do? Jump in the river? Ha! <laughs> you can't kill yourself. Worldly people don't die, he said. Only Jesus died the real death. What is he talking about? He said, why? He never thought of himself. Thoughts of me never arose in that being. There was no agenda. He was one with God. There was no thought about himself. He gave his life for his people and he became immortal. But worldly people don't die. The real death is the death of the ego. He said, someone dies, 
and people that's crying and weeping and they don't eat, they don't do anything. But after a few days, they're eating and drinking again. He said, this world is the flow of attachment. One attachment replaces another attachment, one after the next. That's this world. Samsara is the flow of attachment. Then he looks at me and said, the fruit of attachment is tears. And you're reaping that fruit now. You know, as the man said, you reap what you sow. You, yeah, you reap what you sow. But attachment is not love. Then he says to me, he said, you'll be happy when you're married again. Meaning, you know. And I said, Maharaj, I want to marry you. And he just laughed. He looked at me and said, if you marry me, all you'll get is love. You won't get laid. <laughs> I mean, come on, you know. So that's the deal, man, you know. So it's a big thing, you know, this life is a big thing. It's a big, even though we're not seeing it, the big picture is, is right here where we are, you know. And we need tremendous amount of courage to really stay with that, regardless of what the world tells us, you know, regardless of what our own emotions tell us, what our own stories tell us about ourselves and life. We need tremendous courage to even look for the big picture, to try to really be with that true awareness. It, it's a lifetime work. It's not something that happens over, you know, like this. You realize you're in it. We're in it. We don't know how we got here. We don't know where we're going, but we're going to do the best we can. That's all we can do. We can't do anymore. Hi. The questions seem to have been answered by listening to everybody else, which is always the case. I did have one thing to say, though, kind of a question. I feel like more as I get into the practices and I learn to that my pain and my stuff, especially now going through COVID and everything that I've been going through, that it's all about just being present, right? So all of our practices that we do, it's a way to escape being present. I mean, not our practices, when the mind is whirling, when we're like, you know, being hard on ourselves and all that. Yeah. So more and more, I learn how to be in my heart and to be in that the heart as wide as the world. And I get in that space, whether I'm chanting or whatever it is that I'm doing. And it's, um, I want, I feel like, like a need like to share, right? Not necessarily with Sangha people who also can understand that space, but when I'm trying in this world right now, to because I feel like I have a some sort of a calling because I can get into that space and it's real for me and I want to share it. But what's hard is I recoil because so many people, it's hard for me to stand in that place that I see my teacher, you know, I see Ramdas stood there. It was like unattached, you know, just giving the love, feeling, you know, dar Darshan and all the teachings from him. But not for me, I still feel like 
everyone else's negative energy. Like that love is bull, you know, you, that's not real where you're at. Like we have to fight about politics. We have to have different sides. So I'm trying to stand in my heart. It's easy when I'm alone, but I'm just saying when I I want to join and be out in the world. And sometimes I feel the negativity coming back. Do you understand what I'm saying? Am I explaining it somewhat? I do. You know, our job is to heal ourselves. Because when we heal ourselves, we will experience directly the oneness of the world, that it's all one. Your job is not to heal anybody else. You can't save anybody else. All you can do is be. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink unless it's thirsty. Unless somebody is ready to look at themselves or whatever, however you want to say it, those that feel it will know it. Those that don't feel it will know it. So your job is just to be you and then do whatever you do. But, you know, when I sing with people, I'm not trying to make anything happen for anybody else. I'm sharing my practice. My practice includes, that part of my practice includes other people. So they have their own experience and I have mine. I don't have theirs and they don't have mine. So there's no agenda that you have to go out and, and you know save the world. I know that's not, I know that to be true, but I feel like I've been so healed and that it's like, I don't want to change other people. I just kind of want to share it. And wherever it lands, it can land, you know, but I still, I mean, I'm sure when you're at your kirtan, you know, you probably feel like all everyone's stuff. And then at the end, maybe it's dissipated, but I just feel like sometimes I allow, I feel like it's the right place to be just coming from my heart because I feel like I've gotten so much but I would kind of recoil when the world is a lot of people aren't coming from that place and I don't want to fix well, them, but I just want to share. Yeah. But that this is all ego stuff, you know, Okay. let it go. You use the word I so many times in this last two minutes, okay. you're talking about yourself again and more and more what I want to do, what I want to do. I want to do this. I want to do that. Let it go. You be happy. And then everyone around you will feel that and they'll be attracted to that happiness and the vibration will help them. It's not your job. See, the fact that you're, you recoil at the negativity shows you how much you there's left. You recoil at the negativity. It, it hurts. It hurts me when you see people doing things that are just, don't get me started. But, you know, so that's our stuff. It's not their stuff. They're just being them, which they're allowed to do. It's not our job to change them. Our job is to love them. But love is letting a person be who they are. They're already perfect. I get that. Love everyone as they are, not as you could make them into your image of what you want to be what's lovable but it's so simple and i feel that but i feel like people are like that's you know because i feel love is so much strength and 
you know, I have a Strength problem. Strength to what? I guess impose I your will on somebody else? No, no. It's they impose it. They're telling me. Let's, I kind of allow them to tell me like, that's bullshit. Like you can't be in that love amidst all this that's going on. Like you well, have to be right. in the fight. They're right. They're showing you, they're telling you the truth. You're not in that love. You're losing it because you're not in it. Really. You have to go deeper, sweetie. That's all there is to it. Love everyone as they are. Don't try to tell them how to be so you can love them. They're well, I just, guess I just themselves. want them to feel the love that I feel. And I guess you, that's just. It, it, I, I know. I hear you. That's not that. Uh, that's coming from self-protection. You're protecting yourself. You want them to feel the love you feel so they don't hurt you with their negativity. That's oh, your so ego. They can be, so they can be in love. So they, No, it's, there's nobody out there, sweetie. It's all your projection. I was so far. All those people so who much. are negative, that's that's Maharaji showing you your own stuff. Woo, and you don't okay. want to see it. You want to blame it on them. Go ahead, blame it on them. But it's not their fault. Yeah. I just want I feel like it's simple. It's a simple shift. And I just don't want it's not necessary for me to be in pain. I don't think it's I, I don't know. I, I know what you're saying. Quiet down. I hear you. Calm yourself more and more. Let yourself calm down. Get over what you think it should be and be with it as it is. And you'll see that you need to be wider. You need to look beyond their negativity, but you can't see because that's your negativity. Don't you see that? Your judgmental mind. I can mind. love them regardless of, their, of it, but... Love is not something you do. It's a space that you live in. It's your true nature. When you're finished being who you think you are, there's only love. So, and in that love, all these people who you think are negative now are just bubbles of love. You don't see, you, there's nothing to react in you against the negativity. You don't see you and you don't see them. There's only one being and they're cells of the same being. So, Calm down. You need, you know, part of this is that in these crazy times, we get very pressurized. We can't really let go. There's a pressure. We feel we have to do something. We have to make something happen. We want to rearrange the world. Now, we can't rearrange the COVID. We can't rearrange a lot of stuff, but we still want to rearrange people. You know, the way we want them to be. We want them to play the role the way we've written it, not the way they've written it. And that's a way we protect so ourselves. like alleviate suffering, you know? I mean, but... First alleviate your suffering. Well, I am to some degree, but yeah. No. Yes, to some degree, yeah. Maybe more than a few others. But <laughs> it's still all about me right at this point. Wow. Okay. Well, right. I want to. Th That's I, I okay, mean... and it's good to see this. I'm not attacking in any way. I just want you to understand that. Yeah, I hear you. You know, the whole conversation with us is about me and what they're doing to me and what I don't like about it. 
and what I want for them and all this stuff. And I want them to feel the love I feel, maybe. Love they feel. Yeah. I hear you. Yeah. Let them be. As soon as you stop trying to change them, you'll be feeling very differently about yourself, even. And I didn't realize I was a, still. I didn't realize I was still kind of stuck, and I thought I had evolved from that, but I guess not. <laughs> like maybe, even if it's good intention. Yeah. I thought I've evolved from that. Who said that? You know. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I thought I was God. Yes, at eight twenty-three in the morning, I thought <laughs> I was God. But eight twenty-four, what was I thinking? <laughs> oh boy. Okay. Yeah. Good. Thank you. I just want to thank you again because it's my birthday. Yesterday was my birthday, and for the last I don't know six years, I was on Maui with Ramdas and you, yeah. always for my birthday. Yeah. So I felt like this is a. I'm I'm on the retreat, so I came to chat and chai to kind of very good. Know, well, you celebrate. You, you celebrated your birthday here for a bunch of abuse from me. That's very nice. I appreciate that. <laughs> Obviously, it's good. I needed it. It's food for thought. <laughs> it's good. Yeah. we. That's what we do. We stick our foot out and then Maharaji steps on it. You know, that's good. All good. Thank good. you so much. Thank you. All right, sweetie. Take care. Hi. Nice to see you again. I wanted to share a story with you that shows my self-centeredness. But I was, I've been very moved by everything. It just feels like your heart is very open. It's very moving. So I think I told you, I, Jermaine recognized me or whatever. It took me in when I was a little, 1972, mm. maybe 73 in New York. He had just arrived. He'd been there a couple of weeks. And then my life was Dharma until I was 29, always around teachers, teachings. And I always thought I'll marry a Rinpoche. Of course, I have to marry a Rinpoche. <laughs> I have to, I mean, who, how can I marry like a normal guy or even, and I was a snot, I was like, and not even someone in the Sangha. Cause they're kind of annoying. Like I was kind of backstage with, you know, Yeah. and uh, I never liked Sangha very much. I'm not a, really a group person. It's embarrassing. Me neither. I'm just not, I'm, I'm kind of a loner. So I, you know, I don't know, somehow they took me, I had tea. I was always with the llamas and having tea with them and they taught me how to cook with ginger and scallions yeah. and, ah. you know, Tibetan wow. food, and momos. So then at one point I was 29 and I thought, well, I should be getting married soon. And then I was having a relationship with Gesar, who's uh, Chogam Trungpa's younger son, the bad boy. And I wow. thought, this would be really good. This is perfect. So karmic, you know, and then he dumped me. And, uh, <laughs> and that, <laughs> that wasn't karmic, right? No. No, <laughs> <laughs> and Leonard de Cohen had given his studio for us to this crazy Tertan had come into town. I forgot his name. He's from the same Bhagavan Das, probably. No, not Bhagavan. I met nope. him. He was wonderful. No, it uh -huh. wasn't Bhagavan Das. It was he was a Tibetan Tertan. His fingers were chopped off. Oh, Tulkotundam knows his name because they're from the same small village. Anyways, that they had tortured him and chopped off his fingers. And he was really wild and I didn't feel a connection with him but I was still going and practicing every day and my dad was sitting up in the front and practicing and, and that's where Gaysar would kind of come by to pick up chicks and anyways I forgot what my point was oh so he wanted a break so then Galcha Rinpoche came into town and they said Sangay Khandra you go with Sangay Khandra and Galcha Rinpoche and these other and Pena Rinpoche is coming and you're going to go meet this Tibetan 
female llama who's been recognized by Pena Rinpoche, Jetsama Akalamo. Uh-huh. Have you heard about her? Yeah. Yeah. So we go there and they say, you should go in and meet her, have an audience with her. I was like, okay. So I go in, she says, oh, wow. Oh, I've heard about you and you're, you came with them and blah, blah, blah. Your name is Uma. I said, no, my name's not Uma. And she said, oh, well, Bob Thurman's daughter came through and her name is Uma and you remind me of her. And I was like, well, that's nice. Yeah, I know her, but <laughs> I have a name from my, from Dujim Rinpoche and I'm not changing it. She was like, well, anyways, I know you want to get married. And I know you want to marry a Rinpoche, but I think you should marry my son. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, well, let me check him out. So she says, well, come for dinner. And everyone's like, oh my God, you're, you know, huge song around this woman. And we're all yeah. there. And so I meet him and he's beautiful and he's 23 years old and he's cute. He smokes pot all the time. He's constantly stoned. And I was like, I don't like that. But we get together and I get pregnant and she's like, oh my God. And then everybody leaves town. It's like the circus leaves town. And she says, well, you stay. And I was like, I got to get back to LA. Like I have a life there. And that's where my teacher is and my dad and I was working in the film business at the time. And oh, and he breaks up with me. I get pregnant and the oh. son breaks up with me. And I was like, oh, wonderful. I'm like, what the fuck? And she's like, don't worry about it. He's just off his course. I'm your llama. And I'm like, I don't know if you're my llama. And she's like, I'm your llama. <laughs> and you have to have this baby. Like, this isn't, you know, this is going to be a high incarnation. And I was like, oh my God. And he's like, I don't want to be with you. I'm actually still in love with this Israeli girl. Anyways, I leave and I'm devastated and I'm confused and I'm so ashamed. Then they start calling me like 20 times a day. This is when we had answering machines before cell phones. She says, well, you're going to go to hell in this life and all future lives. You know that, right? You've had the teaching since you were a little girl. And I was like, oh my God. She was like, just have the baby and give it to us. Oh. And no, I wanted to marry someone in the Dharma, like a Rinpoche. And ha- this has been my path. Something's wrong here. But I was so ashamed that I gave away all my Dharmic stuff, everything I'd been doing practice every day since I was a little girl, I gave it all the way to my dad. Don't talk about Dharma around me. I lost my faith. And I stopped talking to Sange Kondro, everybody. And 20 years later, I moved to Cambridge. I became a social worker, left Hollywood, was a vice president of a studio, made a bunch of movies, had the money and that stuff, and it was, didn't make me happy. Had an abortion. So I was like, okay, I'm fucked. Like on the, on the outside, things look good, but I'm fucked because I'm going to hell in this life and all future lives. And I can't ever see my Buddhist friends again because it's, I've broken my vows. And and then I came to visit my mom and Tulko Tundrip walks out of her building. And he's like, I was like, wait, oh, you're a llama. And he says, yes. And I said, I read your books. And he was like, oh, you, have you studied the Dharma? And I was like, I used to, but I don't anymore. And he said, oh, what's been your, and I said, well, I took refuge with Duja Rinpoche. And he was like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, but then I, I broke my vows, so I can't be a Buddhist anymore. And he said, you know what? There's an apartment in this building. I think you should take it and you're going to study with me. So I moved in here. He's upstairs. He's actually, he's leaving his body soon. Yeah. Yeah. He's not yet, but he's down to a hundred pounds. 
And I spent every Saturday for the last three, four years with him. And mm. I told him what happened. And I was just yeah. crying. I said, I'm so sorry. I just, and he said, mm. you're fine. Yeah. That's called real love. There's no judging in real love. And then he said, why don't you call Galcha Rinpoche? He's a little confused now, but he's like 96. He's still alive. He's your teacher. Why don't you call Sangay Kondro? You know, she's like your sister. And then wow. he said, I'm going to call them. So they, Sangay Kondro came to town a month later. And Jay's uh -huh. son was, it was the death of Shambandawa. So we went to the funeral and they said, oh, you sit up front with Sangay Kondra. And I was like, no, I can't. I'm like a bad Buddhist. And they were like, it's ridiculous. <laughs> Stop it. You're not a bad Buddhist. So I'm sitting up there with the whole family. And they said, we remember you. The sisters were there and the whole family. Beautiful. Yeah. We just can't stop judging ourselves, huh? It's unbelievable. It can be no how much love we get. We can't yeah. stop judging ourselves. And like I say over and over, if we weren't judging ourselves, not one place in the whole universe would there be any judgment. Mm -mm. It's just our own stuff over and over again. Yeah. Is does Tulkutandav have everything he needs? Are there people taking care of him? Well, he, the, yeah. his wife, who's one of my best friends, is taking care of him. She's my age, and she's been with him since she was 19. When she was studying at Harvard, he was teaching at the Divinity yeah. School, and he's now 82, I think. So, anyways, but he, I mean, he's happy as a clown. He's fine. Yeah, why not? Yeah, totally fine. We're just like, no, stay in your body. <laughs> Yeah, that's like Ramana Maharshi. They say, don't leave us, don't leave us. He said, where can I go? I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> like, he just keeps getting smaller and smaller, his yeah. body. They have enough They have enough money? Yeah, she teaches. She's a lawyer and she teaches law. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. well, thanks, thanks for uh, sharing that, Dale. Yeah, I just thought I'd share. I was so touched by the, but the, how we can get off track, you know, how, and how not all, I mean, I don't want to say anything bad about, it's not about Jetsamak and Lama. I mean, and of course, I'd heard the teaching many times, like in old traditional teachings, you don't commit suicide, you don't kill a baby, you don't do that. Well, on the other hand, there's a story about Nityananda, who was Muktananda's guru. Oh, yeah, I remember really, Muktananda. Yeah, yeah, well, his guru was was Nityananda. Uh -huh. And he was really one of the great beings. One day, a car pulls up outside of his ashram at his little temple. And this couple comes in, and the woman's carrying a newborn baby that had died, a dead mm. baby. And they come up, and they said, Baba, please open his eyes, you know. So Nityananda takes his hand and he goes like this and the baby's eyes open. And yeah. Then he goes like this and the baby's eyes yeah. close. And then he says, now take him away and bury him. So they leave. And one of his disciples says, Baba, why didn't you bring him back to life? You can do that. And he said, of course I can do that. 
but do you want to take responsibility? This mm. soul took birth in this family three times just so he could die in my presence. Oh, wow. Yeah. You go ask them what happened. And it turns out the woman had two miscarriages before this. Mm. Mm. And he said, do you, you want to take responsibility? Our arrogance at thinking mm. we understand anything, mm. that we can do anything for anyone, so Mm. ridiculous it's so childish it's so mm. it's so sad so we have to really expand a little bit you know so yeah. that baby took birth just so he didn't have to stay here very long he had that much work to do with you and that his father and all his ancestors that's all he needed to be here for this moment so any other story you tell yourself is your imagination mm. Oh, they say this is bad, and they should, you should never do this. You don't know that. But you also say you how you were influenced when you're, when, what was your Indian father's name? Mr. Tuareg. Right, and someone's cast a slight negative vibe on that in the beginning when you were told, oh, there's something a little strange there. How yeah, inf yeah, yeah. we're influenced. I'm not a so when uh, Jess Mock and Lama, this female, the first female supposedly enlightened being that I met who's a Lama says to me, you know, yeah. you're supposed to be my daughter and you're supposed to bring in the next great incarnation of a Buddha yeah. and you build him that's, and you're going to. Yeah. That's why we have to trust ourselves because <laughs> anybody out there could tell us any fucking thing they want to control us. They don't believe it, but they want you to believe it. So they get that. Oh, want. this is the part of the story I didn't tell you. So Sangay's Kondra comes to town. She gets my phone number. She calls me and she says, where have you been for 20 years? And I said, um, well, it's a long I've been story. living in hell. <laughs> I said, yeah, I've been living in hell, basically. I've been living in fucking hell. I broke all my Buddhist vows. I haven't been able to see you or any of my teachers. And she said, well, didn't you know that Pena Rinpoche dethroned Jetsam Akunlamo? And I was like, no. And then she's like, what did she tell you that you've been, why did you leave us? And I'm like, well, because I got pregnant and had an abortion. And she's, oh, why didn't you come to talk to us? Yeah. 20 years. Because of your own programs. Yeah. So maybe now you finished doing that to yourself. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so too. <laughs> mm. All right. Take good care, huh? Thank you. I have a question. Do you have recommendations to calm the mind in personal and professional moments that cause a lot of anxiety? Everything we're talking about is we're talking about just that. Every word that's been spoken in the last two hours is about how to do that and why we, how to learn how to do that, how to recognize how to do that. For me, the chanting practice is one of the most powerful tools that I have, but it's not a button that you push and then it makes all the anxiety go away. It's something you add to your life that over time ripens and deepens and allows you to gain some vote over how you go through the day. See, in those moments when you're freaking, there's very little you can do, especially for us who are beginners on the path. We have no understanding, no ability really to 
changed the way we go through our day very much, except a little bit at a time. But one thing you can do is just for a second, you know, if you're at work, go into the bathroom and sit down on the toilet, take a couple of deep breaths and just let everything go through you, roll off you like rain over the body. Just let it drip off of you for just a second and then go back and get stupid again because you won't be able to hold on to it. But that effort you make for one second to release it all is very powerful. And that will deepen as time goes on. But no, there's no button to push that makes it all change right now. One must start to learn about what the spiritual path is about, what life is about, and get with the program just a little bit so that over time, these practices really have a positive effect on you and change the way you go through your day, change the way we react, change the way we lash out, change the way we hide, change the way we try to manipulate other people to make it all okay for ourselves. So it's just, it's little by little we have to learn how to do that. But we should always remember that the only reason we can learn how to do that is that inside, we are already perfectly okay as we are. And there's no doubt about that. We don't think so, but that's okay because in here, we are already perfectly okay as we are. And nothing we could do can change that in any way, ever. So it's a question of finding out how to uncover that place within ourselves again and again and again until it becomes natural for us to be in that place. Okay. Thank you. The last time I was here, I shared about some insight that I have recently garnered from my past. And so it's been a couple of weeks since we've been together. Basically, the process that I'm going through right now is I'm having a very stark, very eye-opening experience where I'm actually seeing the patterning that was put, the, how the experiences that I went through through my childhood and honestly for the last 30 years have created so much of my self-talk and the patterns that I had continued to tell myself that I wanted to outgrow. And so much of that patterning was stuff that I felt was out of my control, uh, but I continued to seek and ask. And really what ended up happening, it was just so strong and so just so powerful and so monumental in my life. And I think I will look back on it for, I mean, the rest of my life probably as a turning point, as a switch that was flipped. It felt like a lightning bolt. It felt so illuminating. It was such an experience that, you know, and even in the moment that experience was so, it was actually a, a bit of a volatile experience, but it was also the last straw. and. Uh, it, it got me to that point where I, after 30 years of 
what I'm now coming to realize was living under the abuse of a narcissist. It just, it threw me right over the edge. Finally, I just could not take it any longer. And then this kind of this monster came out of me. And, you know, even that experience, it created some shame and some real, I was just like, wow, that doesn't feel like me. It it was very uncharacteristic. However, since then, and even honestly, during the, you know, the processing of that experience, I knew exactly where it came from. But it's obviously left in its wake, a situation where I'm sitting with and processing. And it's kind of interesting because, you know, we talk about, and I'm listening, that, you know, people are perfect as they are and people are love. And as a person that, you know, embraces love and I attempt to shine my light as brightly as possible and continue to do that even for that person for the last 30 years, I'm at this spot now where my mother's tied to this person and my mother's my best friend. And so I continued to play the part and the role of, you know, the best daughter that I could be and always wanting to be the people pleaser and always wanting to kind of stuff the scenarios that were harmful or hurtful or even when there was justification about why those things were okay. For example, I was molested by my stepfather's best friend. And when my mother found out 10 years later, they continued to be friends with him and they are to this day. So that's just one example. And so I was kind of made to feel like I had to deal with that, you know, and had to be, my mom's motto has always been about letting go and of the past and not holding on to the things that are hurtful. And uh, so that's what I attempted to do especially because it was a relationship that I cherish, you know, she's my person. So since this lightning bolt situation happened with my stepfather, after he pointed a can of WD-40 at me and I unleashed myself upon him, a wall came down between my mom and I, an energetic wall. And it was completely not ever anything I would have expected. And so now I'm sifting and sorting. And part of that sifting and sorting has been realizing the truths, my truths, realizing that those experiences are the experiences that created the voice in my head and um, realizing that I no longer want to attach myself to those stories, but also realizing that I am attached to those people, especially my mom, and uh, she's attached to him. So I recently had the opportunity to, she was open to having some voice clips because, I mean, she's missing me terribly. And so I sent her some voice clips and I did tell her from the start that it was my intention to come across with kindness and compassion. And, you know, and it's always my default to feel like I want to protect her and to please her. And so it was an odd position for me to be in because that's my default. But I'm also at this spot where I really feel uh, that I, my truth must be told, like how these situations, a number of them have created who I am and how I have, I mean, honestly, I've struggled so much with depression and pain and chronic, you know, illnesses and things like that. And I've been seeking answers, like why, where is this coming from? How do I move beyond this? And so, you know, I'm now to this point where I feel like I'm having some answers about realizing these things have played such a huge part in who I am. So I guess the kind of the part where I'm at right now is like 
how much of that is, you know, ego based, like how much of that of her needing to hear me and for me to feel validated, how much is that is ego based versus loving her, you know, unconditionally for who she is. And I mean, I know for one thing, he's not going to change. He personally is not going to change. And I don't think that's a relationship that I want to continue to try with because I have, and it's never met with anything except for ugliness, honestly. I discussed, you know, kind of told her the things that had played into me. Then there's this little tinge of, I want to honor, you know, my process and where I'm at. But then there's this little spot where I'm like, well, how much of that really needs to be out there, you know, but it's out there now. (laughs) So that's where we're at. Listen, this is really, this is very deep and complex stuff, really. This is a situation that it took a lifetime to get to this place and it'll take a while to unravel itself. If I might make a suggestion, it would be very useful for you to find a counselor who's really good at this kind of stuff. And there are people who are just phenomenally gifted in helping us work with these type of situations exactly. And that would really help you a lot because you have a lot of processing to do and there's a lot of your relationship with your mother and relationship with her husband and really deep stuff there. And it's something you're going to need help with over time. I really feel that. It's going to be very difficult for you to really unravel this by yourself. Really, if you can find a way to find a, a counselor or a therapist that really specializes in helping these situations unravel. And there are people like that who are really good. And that's that would be the best thing you could do for yourself at this point. And if it's the best thing you can do for yourself, it's also the best you can do for your mother. So for the whole situation to release all this energy that's locked in this in the emotional programs that are that are intertwined here. Really it, it's something that's going to take time, but you see you have the courage to deal with it. Now you just need the tools. And I don't have those tools. But there are people who really do have those tools. And I would suggest you try to find somebody because you'll be so happy that you did to talk to somebody who really knows how to help you unravel. I mean, it's a gift that some people really have. So take your time and look around for somebody like that. And I think that's the best thing you can do to add that to whatever processing you're doing. Okay? Yeah, it makes good sense. Yes. And in the meantime, I will continue to chant and, you know, participate with all of these cool events. There's so many that we can find online. And yeah, I mean, so cool. I mean, this COVID thing, if nothing else, it opened up the world. You know, we can intervene with so many other people and so many resources are out there. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. So that's it for today. Thanks so much to everybody for coming. And I really appreciate the way that we, all this opening up and the sharing of our stuff really helps everybody because we all have the same stuff in one form or another. 
we're all trying to find out what's going on with us and find our find that love that lives within us and we all have the same issues so it's it's really useful to talk like this and so i wish you all the best take good care be safe be safe wear a mask wash your hands hide yourself in the bathroom don't do anything <laughs> okay much love bye bye i'm around Thank you so much for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by the Kirtan Mala Foundation. Krishnadas is renowned for leading kirtan, the spiritual practice of chanting, and workshops around the world. For more information about him, including upcoming events, please visit krishnadas.com. K R I S H N A D A S.com. We also invite you to visit kirtanwalafoundation.org. K-I-R-T-A-N-W-A-L-L-A-H foundation.org Here you will find more offerings dedicated to spreading the teachings of Neem Karoli Baba. Love everyone, serve everyone. Remember God. Ram Ram.